welcome to episode 192 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 29th of August, 2022. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. I do like to be beside the seaside. <laughs> Graham. This is art. And Will. Hello. Don't bring our off-air discussions <laughs> on air, Graham. Especially not on the last day of summer. This is August bank holiday for normal people. This is it. After this, is no more bank holidays until Christmas. It's just uh, the grind of work. But... Uh, it's been a month since we've got together and recorded properly, and so a lot has happened in the news. Let's start with some good news, and that is that multitasking is coming to Arduino. Will, I think you're quite excited about this. It just seems absolutely incredible that the Arduino processor, and now it's moved on a lot since the early days, but nevertheless, that they're bringing a multitasking stack to normal people. This is going to be a very, I think, quite a difficult learning curve, and the reason I say that is that over the many years that Arduino has been around, they have established the pattern of having a setup function and a loop function. And then you just call the loop function and it goes around in a loop and it just does one thing after another, after another, after another, and does it again and again and again and again. And that's a very established pattern to bring multitasking and uh, non-blocking code into this environment, I think is going to be quite a learning curve for a lot of people. But it is going to bring them bang up today. It's going to be a way to learn a modern programming methodologies. And I think it's going to bring a lot of power and a lot of exciting things to Arduino. We're going to see a lot more devices out there built on Arduino that previously you would have needed an entire Linux stack to do. And now you can do it all in Arduino. It's going to be good fun. And they're doing this in quite an open way as well. They've put a proposal out there and then people can comment on it and potentially improve it and make suggestions and all that. Yeah, I think Arduino have done a very good job of being open source and open to ideas and open to feedback and accessible and just you know, generally uh, abiding by the good word of free and open source software and hardware, of course, much to their detriment over the financial detriment over the years where their boards have been, uh, I won't say ripped off, but, but, but their designs have been used and manufactured by third parties. And, you know, that's income that Arduino have happily given up. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't expect much less from Arduino. They're a good old open source bunch. And this, if I think I read it right, is is on the same hardware. It's like it's, if you've got a standard Arduino Uno board, say, it's going to run on that as well. You don't need new hardware for, say. Well, I mean, it, it talks about the increased capabilities of Arduino and other controller boards, uh, specifically multi-core. And now the original AppMega 328s are not multi-core. But, you know, over the last however many years, things have all been moving to ARM cores and multi-ARM cores. So I, I don't think you're going to be able to do this on a good old AppMega pick, but I think you'll be able to do it on, on anything reasonably new. I think what they really want to do there was just invalidate the fact that I've done the Blink and only the Blink demo, and now I have to go and do a new one. One of the reasons I moved to the Raspberry Pi for some of my own projects was because I needed multitasking. And of course, it was a great part of Arduino that it was simple in the setup and main um, loop. But just like um, Will said, most programming languages support multitasking as part of their design. And it's such an important skill to learn. I've also done stuff with libboost on C to try and create the same thing on a more embedded environment. It's a nightmare to do yourself. 
So I think they're going the right way. It probably won't magically make everything multitask. And I do worry about the kind of performance hit, which is always the great thing about a single loop, but it's definitely the right direction. So nearly a month ago now, it leaked that GitLab was going to delete dormant projects. And there was a huge backlash. And then they decided that they weren't going to do that, despite having done quite a lot of work by the sounds of things in the back end to uh, save themselves around a million dollars a year in hosting fees. But it took this internet pylon of everyone. And uh, so, yeah, that's not happening anymore. I feel some of their pain with having a whole load of uh, old data hanging around costing money. It's a very difficult situation for them to be in. I don't think that they really went out of their way to establish themselves as a place where you can host your code with a view to it staying there forever. But neither did they really say that they weren't going to do that. And they certainly encouraged a whole load of open source people to move their stuff off of GitHub and onto GitLab if they people had stuck with GitHub because of presumably the deep pockets of Microsoft, you can just linger there forevermore and nobody really cares. So I do understand the business driver behind them doing this, but I think it was pretty obvious that the pylon was going to happen. I guess hindsight is twenty twenty, but I could have guessed that if somebody had asked me. And they then go on to explain that they'd got this other idea where they're going to move their data from some kind of like hot storage where it's accessible immediately to a colder storage in object store where things will be accessible but may take longer to retrieve. Now, longer in this instant could be, you know, a couple of seconds versus a couple of milliseconds or 100 milliseconds for their hot storage. That seems like a, a very sensible way to do it. Object store storage is much cheaper. I think they probably should have done that first. One wonders were they following the Michael O'Leary Ryanair school of getting free PR and uh, already had this one lined up to jump in with because they were awful quick getting it out there. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. <laughs> and I totally agree with what Will said. They kind of went for the open source crowd. I mean, also in trying to be more purely open source in terms of self-hosting GitLab. How many open source projects are languishing for decades? Lots. So yeah, I'm not surprised at the backlash. This isn't SourceForge. There are rules. <laughs> God, I've still got something on SourceForge to remind me. Hey, Flygear's still there too. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> is it still going? Jesus. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's crazy. I don't... It's changed hands about four or five times, I think, or something crazy. Oh, my God. Well, a take on this that I can link to in the show notes is from Joe Brockmeyer, who is a Red Hat employee, who likens it to the outcry that happened when CentOS moved to CentOS Stream. And he basically makes the point that, look, you're getting it for free. Stop fucking moaning. If you don't like what they're doing to you as a free user, pay for it. And then they won't delete your shit, which is sort of a reasonable argument, I think. I think it is reasonable. But in this case, just like Will said, it's just a little bit less black and white, if that's the right way to say it, because of the way that GitLab was going for open source projects and because it was trying to be the kind of moral right decision. It's a bit unexpected. And also lots of projects kind of flirt with that idea of something being free to attract people. And it's always bad when they turn around. And I would say the same thing about CentOS. It's good that you mentioned that he was employed by Red Hat. Um, and I've, I've also interviewed Joe Brockmeyer. He's a decent person, but there are a lot of entitled users out there, but I'm not sure this can be applied to the outcry over GitLab. 
One of the analogies he draws is that of Gmail, where they'd been offering a free service for 10 years that people kind of came to expect was going to be free forevermore. And then presto, change-o, $5 a month. Now, in the Gmail situation, I think if they had said it was going to be $1 a month, people would have just sucked it up and said, you know what, I get more than a dollar's worth of enjoyment out of this or, you know, use. I'm happy to pay that. There doesn't seem to be any talk of what the alternative that GitLab offered as far as paying goes. You know, you don't want a full-blown enterprise license to use this thing. What you want is just someone to keep your code live forevermore, and you will pay them a reasonable amount. And I think that that should be more than free and should be less than $5 a month. Well, all you had to do was keep that code alive, whether that was one commit, one comment, just making sure it wasn't dormant. You could script that with a cron job on your local machine. That seems to be obeying the letter, but not quite the spirit of the uh, the thing there. Oh, cool. Another one-byte change from Joe Rest. What a dick. Yeah, you could just update your readme with a, just a tab rather than a space. Just keep changing it once a month. Well, no, because that'd be wrong, and nobody should do that. Well, as long as you kept alternating, then you piss everyone off. Your project is 50% wrong. <laughs> I mean, I'd be perfectly happy if old projects that hadn't been used for ages went into the deep freeze and wasn't just a few seconds to access but maybe took a day to access you know if people hadn't been accessing it i think that's a bit extreme i think you know maybe five minutes but i'm thinking of hard drives in the garage i don't know what gitlab's <laughs> operating on <laughs> put the tape in mother somebody yeah, wants yeah, yeah. Oh, hold on. <laughs> somebody wants k album <laughs> okay this episode is sponsored by tailscale go to tailscale.com Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com and try it for free on up to 20 devices. That's tailscale.com. There was a recent GitHub controversy. Now, this involves crypto bullshit, and so I was tempted to just skip over this, but it's fairly important for other reasons. To quickly summarize the crypto aspect of it, Tornado Cash is a service that they call like a Tumblr or a Mixer, where you can send various crypto bullshit transactions. They get chopped up, mixed together, spun around, washed laundered perhaps you might say <laughs> well I, I think i think we should be fair that the, the for people who don't know that if people who think that bitcoin etc is all anonymous it really isn't because it's got a perfect record of who you've spent but they just don't know who you are you're a number but if you ever found that out then they'd have every transaction you ever made which is the most ridiculous pile of shite ever but yeah anyway so that's why these services exist because you know maybe you don't want anybody to know what you just bought in the shop yeah exactly and so there are perfectly legitimate uses for services like this for example 
donating to Ukraine, especially if you're in Russia or you have uh, ties to Russia or whatever. That's just one example. And, you know, there are millions of others of legitimate uses. But there are also quite a lot of illegitimate uses like laundering money, like hiding money that you've stolen. I mean, I say money, crypto bullshit, but whatever. I feel a horrible car analogy coming our way. <laughs> no, there isn't. Don't worry. Anyway, suffice to say, the US government decided that this tornado cash thing uh, was bad news. And so they put sanctions on it, which meant that the likes of GitHub cannot do business with them. And by do business, that includes host the code for the project. But GitHub went a little bit further and actually banned some of the developers. And the EFF quite diplomatically skips over the fact that it's crypto bullshit, but says that's not really on. And so a backing Professor Matthew Green, who re-uploaded the source code to a different GitHub account as a kind of free speech protest. So fail him, this really falls between the cracks of your <laughs> hatred of crypto bullshit and Microsoft. <laughs> I've never been so torn. <laughs> I, to get, I think when I got my trouser leg caught in a escalator, <laughs> I hate crypto. I really do. It is a, you know, I love that tweet where it's, you know, it's not just a pyramid scheme. It's many other types of scams. But uh, also it's, uh, yeah, it's Microsoft kind of going above and beyond to really be dickheads about it as well. Like, I mean, there are legitimate uses for this thing. And okay, if they have been designated as, I don't know what the term that the US legal system uses, but sort of persona non grata, whatever, then fine. Yeah, Microsoft has no choice but to mark them as such and therefore disable the stuff. But why they went the extra whole hog and deleted other people's accounts or disable them, that's just overreach, really. Because, I mean, this thing could be used for many things. Like, you could be buying medical tests or whatever with this thing. It's not always, you know, you're the mob boss trying to wash the cash out of the company. And while that might have been going on a lot, it's like saying, oh, are you buying that with cash in real, in, you know, real world cash? Then clearly you're a criminal because you, that only means you don't want to be traced. Well, that, no, it's bullshit. Yeah, you might be accessing reproductive health. Well, yeah, I mean, because <laughs> that's now illegal in a lot of places. Um, so there's a legitimate use case for it. And fair enough, if they mark it as such, then okay, then it should get stopped as a project. But I don't think you should penalize the actual developers who have contributed to this. You're getting to the point now where you need a GitHub account for every single project that you're involved with and every single email. Because if any one of them get cancelled and that locks you out, what if that is your career? You know, you can't just have yourself removed access from every project. What if you're running multiple projects yourself? If you're the lead developer on a project, that's you gone. Host your own code, people, for the love of God. <laughs> <laughs> so VLC Media Player has been banned in India and apparently has been since February, but it's only just come to light recently. And this seemingly is because a Chinese malware group used VLC, perfectly legitimate and normal installations of VLC, to hide malware in systems that they'd broken into another way. And so now you can't go to the VLC website, you can't download it if you're in India. This is pretty bad. It is bad. And it's kind of similar to the reason why I didn't really comment on the Tornado Cash story we were just talking about. The people in India need to confront this kind of injustice, if that's what it is, with kind of these big government decisions if they go too far. 
with our help, maybe if that's what's necessary, but it's really difficult to kind of fight against, other than talking about it, stupid decisions like this that don't make any sense. Stupid decisions that will ultimately backfire because if people are searching for VLC and they can't get the proper version of it, they're going to download it from some other website that may be a version of it with malware. So it's going to totally backfire on them. Yeah, and there's probably some Streisand effect to this and also Tornado Cash. I don't know, it's always naive on the sake of the government, but then governments are useless kind of globally when it comes to dealing with technology and the PR of technology. I think that's an interesting discussion in its own right. Why is it in 2022 that governments, and it's not back of beyond places, like India's a bloody huge place with a huge tech industry, why are their government making these sort of basic mistakes? And the UK do it all the time. Uh, well, make mistakes about technology. How is it uh, in this day and age, we still have governments who are incapable of making sensible decisions and seeing through bullshit. I wonder, like, did the likes of Linux distros have to block repo downloads of VLC, though? That's the funny thing about this. I doubt it. Uh, yeah, it said they've gone after the website, but that's about it. It's similar in the UK when they try and block a website, that they only forcibly tell the big ISPs, the BTs of the world, that they have to go and block this website. But if you're a small ISP and you have less than a certain number of customers, the law or the rules don't apply to you because you haven't got the resources to implement the blocking systems. So it's a really half our system uh, and is going to be bypassed by a whole load of people very easily. Yeah, and that's quite naive of you, Fanny, to think that Linux users downloading it from the repos are going to even make a small dent in the number of people using VLC. Well, I don't care about the other people. Remember that. I, I hate oh, the other right. people. <laughs> you don't care about the vast majority of people using no, VLC on Windows. The unwashed mass. No, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems unworkable to block it from repos. That just doesn't seem to... They probably couldn't even conceive of that, the people that would make this law in the first place. Well, the question is, I wonder if they've blocked it from the Microsoft Store as well, or the Apple Play, or Apple Play Store. You know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Anyone in India listening, do let us know. Maybe there's already a VLD project that you can <laughs> <download> from. <laughs> On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And that contains this show, Linux After Dark, and Linux Downtime. And if you're not listening to those two shows, you should be. You can always search your podcast player for Late Night Linux All Episodes, and you'll see like this weird striped artwork. That's the one you want. That gets you everything in one RSS feed. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash latenightlinux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. 
So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. There was a huge controversy with Google recently. There are two parents who have been reported to the police and had their accounts totally deleted because at the request of medical professionals, they took photos of their kids' private parts, and then those photos were backed up to Google Photos got flagged by some sort of machine learning AI thing. And then even when these people proved that doctors had asked them to take these photos and send them, Google just said, nah, fuck you. You're not getting your account back. Failing, this uh, probably makes you feel really smug. <sighs> yeah, um, smug. I don't know if smug, it actually makes me angry. Well, obviously it makes you angry. Is there anything that doesn't? No, I like my cup of tea in the morning that doesn't make me angry it makes me happy um but this this is just fucking outrageous okay i mean not to sound stupid but don't trust a company to host something important to you and then expect them not to take it away at some point but there has to be some sort of legal avenue that somebody can say i didn't break any law i should have my email account back there's no way they should be taking this back especially when they're wrong i'm sure it was some case of well, we'll fucking show you and then do this. And I can't think of a worse thing to be accused of. Yeah, they should be compensated. I agree. It's absolutely outrageous. Like, out-fucking-rageous. And this is going to become a huge problem because, at least from my personal experience here in um, England, every doctor's appointment now is a precursor to that, is taking a photo of whatever's wrong and sending it over to the... Yeah to the GP surgery for them to look at before they'll give you an appointment. So they must be inundated with pictures of privates. And I know that my doctor uses Gmail, but it's not like a company account. So it's not like at a domain. It's uh, oh, wow. it's <laughs> doctorsurgery at gmail.com. I thought you lived in Dublin, not outside in Boggerland, as you call it. Hey, look, I don't think uh, GPs are renowned for their technical prowess, so you would hope they studied their medicine and not their IT stuff. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm I'm totally with you on this, actually, Phelan. I've always been deeply sceptical and suspicious of this the image algorithms anyway i i completely believe in the reasons why they're doing it but i want i believe it shouldn't be in like a private corporate interest to do it it should be public we should understand what's happening we should understand the risk in terms of actual statistics and understand why the solution is the right solution if images are going to be scanned it should all be done in public and people and companies like google when they make the bad call should be accountable for it there's no other way and it's the absolute perfect argument to get anything you want through. Oh, what mm. are you for the pedophiles? I mean, who the fuck yeah. goes yeah. against that? There needs to be a proper process here. If it's going to be flagged by AI, then fine. But then you've got to have a human in the loop. You've got to have a human to assess it and to liaise with the authorities, whether that's the police or whoever. Yeah, but that means reading... The context around the image, doesn't it? Maybe looking at email and seeing whether it was an email to a doctor's surgery or whatever. Um, and that's fucked up too. Mm. I don't think it does. I think that if if Google are alerting the authorities, they must have some sort of reference number. So just a computer can alert the authorities with a reference number, and then that reference number should be passed back and say, no, actually, the police say everything's fine, and unpick it. I think the point that Joe is making is about them being accountable is absolutely vital. And if you are a business who is offering a service to the public for free, 
then there needs to be some legal recourse and and proper methods for contacting this company in the event of some sort of dispute. Until now, well, and forevermore, no doubt, the answer is, well, it's something we give you for free, therefore we don't actually have to provide any support, we don't actually have to provide any kind of guarantees of service level or anything. It's just like it's a free thing. If you don't like it, you don't have to use it. And I think that that needs to be stopped. But imagine if he had Google for domains and this was his company as well. I mean, because mm. who knows the amount of people that send personal stuff through the company email. Mm. And imagine mm. you've just taken an entire company's email offline. Yeah. yeah. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> Where do you draw that line, though, Will? Because on the one hand, Google are this huge, like almost utility-sized company. And Gmail is just the de facto email now. And okay, maybe Outlook and what Microsoft are doing and some other providers as well. But if you consider this podcast, almost everyone listening to this is listening for free. Should we have to give any support to people like say, I don't know, their download gets corrupted or they don't like us saying fuck all the time. If they don't like us swearing, they can fuck off. Like end of story. Like we, we, we're not obligated to do anything about that because it's free. But we're just this tiny podcast in the grand scheme of things. So where do you draw that line? I think the word utility is a very good one here. We are not providing a utility to the masses, whereas email is, and photo hosting is, and backing people's files up is. I think that that's the, that's the difference between somebody who's providing a service for free and somebody who is just publishing a well, I don't know, whatever the other examples are. A silly show about computers. Yeah. But I also think we do have some kind of obligation. And I think we're quite good at addressing that when people email us and they bring in different opinions and say that we're wrong. And we usually respond mm. to that. And yeah. Google simply doesn't fucking respond to that. Mm. Yeah. But again, that's because of their size as well, because they're just too big to respond to it. But they've also got a bazillion pounds, so they could hire everybody in the world and pay them a wage, and they could provide this service. They choose not to because it's hard. Mm. So in conclusion, fuck Google and fuck algorithms that scan for shit because there's going to be so many false positives that it's not worth it. With damaging consequences. <laughs> yeah, I think the consequences are severe. I, I don't think that we should give up on this concept. I think it can do a lot of good, but it needs refining, and it needs refining very quickly. And I think to tie everything in, we should try and find a way of electing people who understand about technology, who can enforce this kind of correct behaviour on these people that operate like utilities and have a, such a deep impact on our lives. Thank God Nadine Dorries is available. <laughs> <laughs> Even I know how bad that is. <laughs> Let's do a quick KDE corner then. First, uh, Nate's updates. There have been quite a few over the last month. Yeah, you got about four weeks worth there. Uh, but one of the first was he wants to try and stop highlighting some of the microscopic bugs. He was a bit worried that people might think that KDE was super buggy or something when really they're just sort of highlighting some of the very low level stuff all the way. So just a bit of a change there, maybe. But a few, just four highlights I had from each week. Uh, sorry, four highlights I had one each week was um, better Samba messages were coming in with the wizard. I think it's quite a nice feature. For people trying to share files in a mixed environment, it's quite, it's Samba is still the way to go, really. There's some accessibility improvements. Plasma 5.26 is fully screen readable. I think that's 
epic news because I just don't think it gets enough. Mm. And uh, it's just great to see that. And to be honest, I wish I could help out more in that respect, but so good to see that. Dolphin's got a new selection mode, so you can kind of you can hit a shortcut key and then you can just highlight stuff away uh, in a single click rather than you can with a double, which is handy. I think they're trying to sort of adapt it for touchscreen stuff. So that's quite good to see as well. And uh, rebindable mouse buttons. I have a mouse button that has like too many buttons on it and all sorts of different places I can't touch properly. And uh, you could tie them to macros and all sorts of stuff now. So that's been quite good. So 5, 5.26 Plasma is looking really good. All right, Kate macro recording. Yeah, so this is another one. There's there's a few changes coming in, Kate. Uh, this one looks really good. So imagine you have a load of data and you want to do a very serious amount of, like, you know, he, in the example video they show turning a list of items into a HTML ordered list and then, you know, each one being hyperlinks and stuff like that. And you essentially can record that and then click play and walk through it. And it's a nice graphical way for people who have all sorts of awk and said hieroglyphics that they've been using to do things in the past. It sort of opens up for people a bit more. And I think that's quite cool. All right. And some application releases, Krita and Caden Live. Yeah, no idea what they've done, but it's really good. I just can't do graphic stuff at all. The only thing I thought was quite funny was Kadian Live has now got an audio editor, so I think we should be able to record this show in that, right? Oh, yeah, we should definitely do that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, I don't know, you've accidentally put something in about Snap packages. We should probably skip over that one. I just thought it was quite funny, but the thing that I thought was quite good was the fact that Ocular and Creed have 50,000 devices a week signed in to get the snaps, which is just mental. I don't know if those numbers are easily got, but uh, John Thordell made them available there. KDN Live had 44,000 snaps in use every month as well. Or, sorry, weekly. It's a failure. What a failure. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's not as good as half of my scripts. I mean, Jesus, come on. Uh, so, yeah, no, I thought it was quite good. So people who are clearly using that for stuff, and uh, there's a nice page where you can see all the KDE stuff there as well. So uh, quite good. And a throwback to our very first KDE Corner, I believe, uh, KDE Neon Docker images. We talked about them and you were baffled, but we'll put right <laughs> as to why they have them. Yes, apparently so. I hear Docker's a thing now. Um, but yes, they made a statement only about a week ago saying 2204 is in work. We're just not quite ready yet. We're working on it. So I'm, I'm fine with that. Uh, my system is stable. I've got all the latest KDE stuff. Don't rush. Get it right. So uh, I guess this is a way of them testing it out and you can test it out to help out too if you want to as well. Nice and simple. All right. And the Academy talk schedule is live. Yeah. Just a reminder. Academy is still, still on the, on the cards in Barcelona in October. And yeah, the schedule's there. So take a look, see what you think get involved and there'll be many things like the voting and new goals that'll be all developed in that system and stuff as well so it's it's gonna be really good to see that and i'd love to go myself and it's barcelona who doesn't want to go all right well we better get out of here then we'll be back next week when we'll have some discoveries and feedback and who knows what else but until then i've been john i've been phelan i've been graham and i've been will see you later <laughs>